Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. Today, we're going to be talking about, discussing, breaking down Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery, Episode 12, titled Vaulting Ambition. I am Michael Flores, your host, and in the studio, chewing and chowing down on some ganglii. Getting those secret recipes of Kelpie. Kelpian delicacy dishes. We're eating the limbs of Saru. <laughs> We're enjoying them. Quite tasty. The gangly eye is quite tasty. Would you not agree, Dave? It's a little rubbery. I'm, I think it's uh, nice and slippery when it goes down the throat. Much, oh. You know what? It's cal- almost like calamari. Let's not let's not be let's not be closed minded. Let's be more open minded to other cultures and what they and what they eat and what they might taste like. Yeah, we eat calamari. The Terran Empire eats Kelpians. Kelpians. Why hey, not? hey, Klingons eat everybody. That, that's a <laughs> valid point. They don't care. They don't care. <laughs> they do not care. All right. So this week's episode is directed by Hanel M. Culpepper and written by Jordan Nordino. Uh, this was an episode that had lots of reveals as the writers got to work on the final quarter arc of the season with just a few episodes left. In Discovery's inaugural season, the writers are turning some heads, David, with this week's plot twist. Oh, yeah. Were you, and be honest, David, were you taken by surprise? Did you suspect the Lorca reveal at all? No, because I did think that Lorca would, they would go that route with Lorca. I thought Lorca was going to be tied to, you know, the prime, prime universe's secret service or something. Not this. This was actually out of the blue. But then when I when afterwards when I wrote it, I smacked myself in the head because I'm going. Wait, you, all you the, wrote it? Are, <laughs> you wrote this episode? I wrote this episode. Uh, no, <laughs> when I uh, when I uh, watched this episode, I rewatched past Discovery, and yeah. I'm like, there were so many. Re- uh, there were so many. There hits, was. There really was. And we, no one ever. No one ever thought about it. Yeah, and if you attempt to do a reveal like that, you better have been dropping breadcrumbs because you don't want one of those things that a lot of old school TV shows have been accused of doing, where you just pull shit out of your ass at the last minute no. because you're desperate for those ratings. This was planned from the very beginning, and honestly. We're going to get into all that because there's a lot there's a lot of Lorcas. This is going to be a Lorca eccentric show today. Yes. A lot of stuff. But now when you look at this story and what Brian Fuller originally had planned, it kind of makes sense for his original. When you look at what his original pitch was, which was um, for this to be an anthology series, you can see now, OK, this is supposed to be a one and done story and you move on and you can kind of see that how all the characters are either being a killed off, they're having a resolve. You could almost see an ending to their storylines. 
not to say they can't extend them. Yeah. Not saying that, but everything's very tidy and neat to where it feels like it's it's a standalone story. We're not relying on season two, season three, season four for these reveals, which is a lot, which is what a lot of TV does with their shows. They don't do these reveals. They don't do these plot twists a lot, a lot of the times because they wait several seasons because they know they have the time to do it. Yeah, it's. I mean, honestly, this whole series, I'm really impressed with how cohesive and tighten it they the they've made the story story, really good absolutely and you don't see that very nowadays because people always want to have that shocking mid-season reveal or the the twist ending in the very uh, season finale this is something that they're not they're they're honestly this reminds me of like really good classic storytelling yeah it's something that and this is something we keep saying because Discovery is very different from anything that we've seen in terms of Star Trek, not necessarily the vibe. And and there might be people out there that point and say, well, yes, it is very different. That's why it's not Star Trek. But I disagree with that, with that line of thinking. I feel like this this feels like Star Trek, but they're also attempting to do something very different, different, which needed to be done because the last couple franchise or the last couple shows that they tried to do didn't work out well. It didn't connect with the audience. This, I feel a lot of people are shunning it because it was on CBS All Access. It was, it cost money. Like, oh, what do you mean? I kind of spend the money on this. Why? <laughs> Please make it be free. Like a bunch of who framed Roger Rabbits running around, apparently. <laughs> but I feel like from the very get go, the, the, the story wasn't given a chance because of. The negativity that was connected to the pay structure and the release distribution strategy and all those things. And I feel like people aren't paying attention. But honestly, Dave, time will tell. And I think time is on the side of discovery. In four or five years, in six years, in seven years, Star Trek fans are going to come back and say, you know what? This is really solid. This is a solid, solid show. Now, let's get back to Lorca, Dave. All right. Suddenly. Suddenly, Lorca's behavior that has been disguised as PTSD has revealed itself. And again, I, for one, did not expect this. I did not expect it all at all. I know that the episode, I know that when the episode came out, there were a lot of folks complaining. They are claiming that they saw this coming from a mile away. But I think most of us mere mortals, you and I, David, were just as surprised as the writers wanted us to be. Yes. And just wow. Well done. In this day and age, Dave, where our listeners listen to our shows and they're amazed by our speculation, what we get right. We're pretty much on on par with what the writers are trying to get the audience to. We, I'm not saying it's predictable. I'm saying that we understand and we're in tune with writing and we get what they're trying to do. And for the, the writers of Star Trek Discovery to pull this type of technique and I and I didn't see it coming. You get an applause. Oh, yeah. Get an applause. Yeah, yeah. Well done. Well done to be able to do a plot twist like that. Something that has never been pulled in Star Trek. And, and this is how you pull off a proper twist. You know, it's How do you just pull not... off panties properly? Because that's what I want to know. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you wonder about Kl- how Klingons do it, but oh. it gets violent. Ridged boobs? <laughs> Ridged boobs. Give me those panties. But in a lot of TV shows nowadays, the twist is just thrown at you with no 
it, with no explanation. Oh, it, it just is. And a lot of people, that that's just a sign of weak writing. And the idea of the twist has been forever tarnished. Tarnished, yeah. With directors like M. Night, where he had that success with Unbreakable. He had the success with The Sixth Sense. And then suddenly he always had to do a twist to where it destroyed his career for almost 15 years. He couldn't recover because he always wanted to do these ridiculous over-the-top twists that made no sense. And you kind of laughed. They were schlocky. They were silly. And because of that, we had an entire generation of filmmakers, TV as well, TV writers, directors, all wanting, all clamoring to get those scripts that had these twists. And it kind of ruined the idea of putting a twist yeah and and these types of scenarios like what discovery did they're the type of twist they're the type of plot twist that will repair that and it goes to show you you need to have a well thought out premise well thought out characters well thought themes well thought out themes and then you have to have your distractions you got to have your ash tylers you have to have your your klingon war You have to have all these things so that you can throw people off the scent so they don't focus on what you're actually working towards. So it was done. This, however, opened up more questions, though. But that's what should happen. Uh, Plus, we've got some new additions to the MU, which is what I'm going to call the Mirror Universe now. I can't. I keep saying Mirror Universe, Mirror Universe, Mirror Universe. And I uh, sound too repetitive. (laughs) <laughs> so i'm just gonna say mu can MU. we agree on that no M- that's a that's a good that's a good designation okay so we've got some new additions to the mu canon pertaining to light sensitivity which we're going to get into that at the end of the show it did raise some red flags there were some i don't want to say complaints there were questions amongst the star trek fandom pointing to certain things and the science of it and i want to i want to put a pin in that because at the end of the show i want to go back to that yeah and kind of and kind of go over it and see how it does work or possibly it doesn't and we'll we'll get into that did that rub you the wrong way at all the light sensitivity no because it made sense because in past iterations of the mu there has been oh look at you look at you using it already there, there there's already <laughs> there's already been moments where we see that the characters are sensitive to light in the original star trek how did they figure out about kirk something was wrong with the mirror kirk and all of a sudden they flicked on the lights and he, you know he he had a light sensitivity thing so it'll be cool. We'll so get it into it. It was really that. cool. Yeah. All right. Plus, we got some answers on Ash Tyler and more. And we're going to get into all of this. But first, let's talk about the ongoing thematic element that we've questioned and or championed for a very long time. And that is the alleged shared parallel fates between the MU and the Prime Universe. Did they just blow up that idea? By showing the MU, Lorca, and Stamets manipulating things from their end? Is this perceived shared destiny of sorts nothing more than engineered manipulation? Now, David, I ask this because we have continually discussed the intertwined fates of the Prime Universe and the MU, but are they potentially tossing those ideas out the window now? 
I don't see. That's the thing about this episode that had that that was a major question for me was like, okay, what are they saying about what the mirror universe is? Right. They're questioning it now. Yeah. And like for the longest time, I always thought, okay, mirror universe, it's a parallel universe. Walk side by side. Now we've always, uh, we've always seen the Federation go over to the mirror universe. It's not a far-fetched thought that basically while the while prime universe can cross over to the mirror universe, why can't the mirror universe right cross over to the prime universe? Yeah. That, that but as and again, you're the the question is, well, does that throw destiny out the window? And it all for me the question became, okay, well, what happened to that Lorca? We know what happened to that Stamets. So you're saying, Dave, just to kind of let me fine tune your your thoughts a bit you're saying no basically that you don't think necessarily it's throwing out the idea of intertwined fate i don't think it is but it does bring it into question okay so can we still romanticize the notion of fates even though there has been obvious manipulation of the universe you feel that we can yeah okay Cause I'm kind of leaning and I put that in a question. I, I put that as a question in our show notes, not just for the audience or, or for you, but for me as well, because the idea of fates and destiny playing a, a part in the MU and the prime universe has been something that we have discussed even on our Patreon shows. We had an entire discussion on what three or four episode arc discussion epi- uh, where we delved into that and we talked about that last week as well. And the yeah. week before that on the discovery edition. And I feel like we can, that we could still think those things and we're going to break it down a little bit more as well to truly flesh it out, whether it's simply the actions of MU Stamets and MU Lorca manipulating things, or can we still look at this in a romanticized way that the fates are still in fact intertwined despite outside interference or outside manipulation. This is a moment, right? There is still countless of thousands of years. And that's what we need to realize. This is just a single moment, right? Yes. This is a single moment. Lorca Stamets, George as the emperor is just a moment in time. There are still countless thousands of years of opposites that could still be perceived as parallel fates. How did George get to here? How did George get to the same place where she was connected to Burnham in the prime universe? Obviously, Lorca has not been manipulating things from yeah, since the beginning no way of time. He could actually have been manipulating that. Right. So I like that idea because it does aid with the science of it all, as we have also said. And honestly, I feel like they're still, I still feel that's what they are, in fact, trying to convey. But you have rogues like Lorca who's relying on those parallels to get what he wants. Yes. And I still say, and I know I said this last week, I still don't think we fully understand Lorca yet. And I remember, if you remember, I said, is he simply just trying to help everybody out, get back to the other universe? And sure enough, he wasn't. But I still don't think it's as simple as it is. We still have three more episodes. I don't think the true intentions of Lorca have have yet to be revealed. No, 
I don't think so either because like while he may be from the mirror universe, we have to also ask, well, what it brings into question, well, what kind of person is he then? If he, if he's the opposite, if, if this Lorca is basically the opposite of what he fights against the emperor and everything. And we know at this point to us, the emperor is an evil person, right? Does that make Lorca a good guy? Right <laughs> now, but also what is it? The, the typical apprentice and I don't want to say prince with a star Wars. I, we already know that in order to climb that corporate ladder, you have to kill your captain. You, you have, have to kill, kill the captain. You have to kill the leader. That's just, that's been set in Star Trek canon since the very first time the MU was introduced to us Star Trek fans way back in the original series in the 60s. So that idea has always been there. But is Lorca's goal simply that, a grab for power? I think that in this day and age, Dave, I feel like that would be very poor writing. That, that you have this complex individual Lorca that we've been introduced to and you whittle him down to one. What's the word I'm looking for? Stereotype. Vis- visceral. No, one visceral agenda. It, it just it destroys the complexity. It's too simple. Yes, it is way too simple, especially for the st- type of storytelling that they've been giving us for the past couple episodes. To just simply say, oh, Lorca's Lorca's a character that's going to be a character that's driven by a, a graph for power. It makes sense in, in, in the MU, but it's very simple storytelling. I don't think it, I don't think we're done with that. Yeah. yeah. There's still a lot of questions. And I think that's the, that is not, I think that I know that's one of the coolest things about this show. It's not about trying to pull the rug out from the audience every episode. Plus the question that I have too is kind of like, well, if that was the point, what why is Burnham important to Lorca? Right. Especially since, okay, if he's from the this universe, right? If he really wanted Burnham, he would have wanted the Burnham that basically was from his universe. Why does he want the Burnham from I'm assuming universe? the other one had died. I'm assuming. Assuming. But why did he groom her? Yeah. To be- simply get at the emperor see there's there's a lot of questions there's still. a lot of questions it's not still. as simple they gave us an awesome reveal and it was cool and it's going to tide us all over but there's still a lot of questions this also brings about another question when it comes to stamets of the mu who's responsible in fact for the corruption of the mycelium the mycelium network it has to be the they they did say the well correction the you ought to being the being that basically talked to Stamets said that the 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 mirror universe Stamets corrupted the mycelium network. Right. Well, and that leads me to believe that he has to be part of Lorca's plan because at first I thought he was part of Giorgio's group and she was already aware. Obviously, we do know she's aware of the alternate the alternate universe, but it doesn't based on her reaction to Burnham's story. It doesn't seem like she was privy to what Stamets was doing. Yeah. And and on top of that, what was the being that was talking to Stamets? Because remember. What being? What are you talking about? Remember when he was having the the talk with his former lover who died? So you don't think it's the lover? I don't think it's the lover. I think that lover is is basically another 
thing that basically is working in the background. Yeah. We'll see, man. Like I said, there's a lot of questions. So either way, we know Stamets is also doing, again, if we want to take what what the mycelium network is communicating to prime Stamets, then yes, Stamets would appear to be working with Lorca, but it would also make sense because Lorca is not a scientist. Even in the other universe, he would need someone to assist him in his travel to find Burnham in the prime universe. This is true. So there's a lot to get into with Stamets this week. He's been placed to on simmer for a couple weeks now. I'm glad that they actually just did this episode threw Stamets right at us right away. Yeah, they needed to. Uh, but he has come to the forefront in a big way this episode. But first, before we get into him a bit more, we need to go to a very quick break. And then when we get back, we're going to break it all down and get into some science as well. That's right, David. Science. We don't we don't we don't shy away from anything on Star Trek from the holodeck science. We got it covered. We're not we're not scientists by any means, but <laughs> not by any means. we'll uh, fumble our way stupidly through science that I pulled from popular science magazine. <laughs> we'll be right back. It's Weird West Sunday. So the first thing I look at is, okay, if you're doing a Western and your inspiration is the surrealism of Sergio Leone, then you better have your panels drawn in such a way that it resembles the work of Leone. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sergio Leone was known during a time when anamorphic was being used. The comic book pages of Pretty Deadly is you saw those mimicking images. And I'm not talking just the wide screen style shots but also just the depth of field and making sure certain elements should stay in focus. Emma Rio studied and did her homework when she got down to doing this comic Yeah, she did a great job. I think going down the path and kind of creating their own their own lore. They created their own lore. Mm -hmm. I think it, it leaves more room for mystery and more room for creativity and originality. Well, and like this one, I don't think I don't think they threw that so much into your face either. Yeah. You know, the Christianity or, or paganism or anything like that. It was if you if you read it like I kinda read it. Catch up on your favorite Weird West discussions from Mike and Clint every Sunday on Rain Man Channel 001. Listen from the Rain Man digital app or tune in. Just search RM Channel 001. The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. I can't believe he did this. I can't believe he's so sm- He's always been the brightest. I mean, growing up, little Tommy, he was the one we thought was going to make the family proud. We thought he was going to be a chemist. We thought he was always mixing. Mixing stuff. But the police told us after death that that was just a meth lab. We thought he was doing his homework. Little we know, he was running shine. Oh, Tommy, why would you put your family through this <laughs> you son of a I wonder how that conversation went down. Like, how did he decide to drink gasoline with his buddy? Where, Bill? 
I heard. You ever seen a movie with Van Diesel called Fast, Too Fast, Too Furious? Number eight? Wait, no, number seven. Number seven. Well, you can get real fast if you drink goddamn Mountain Dew with gasoline. Yeah, let's drink this shit. We get really fast. Like, like, grease like, don't you vote What's that bitch's name? Sandy D. Wait, Sam, what's that bitch's name with the blonde hair? John Travolta's girlfriend. Sandy. Sandy. Sandy, Sandy D. I heard you can be Grease Lightning fast if you can bone Sandy D. Give that Mountain Dew and gasoline, Tommy. Or Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it? Well, that's exactly how we feel about you. That's right. AdamandEve.com wants you so bad. We're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order. You heard me right. That's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, an adventurous toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. Energize. We're going to be uh, continuing our discussion and breakdown on this week's current episode of Star Trek Discovery, episode 12 of season one, titled Vaulting Ambition. All right, now, David, I don't know if you did your homework this week that I had assigned you, Mr. <laughs> Sabal, but uh, I did. I chose my cinematography shot of the week. I don't know if you did. This was tough because <laughs> there were so much. Was, there was a lot of shots and I was like going, holy shit. I, I, I don't know which one that I want to take. There was a lot. Um, mine, though, after. I want to say hours, but in actuality, it's probably like 20 minutes. I whittled it down to a shot when Laurel was in the brig. And that was she good. was contemplating Vox plight. The framing was just completely poetically mesmerizing, and it said a lot. Lork Lorel was on camera right at the edge of the frame, and there was a bunch of open space, the brig wall, taking up the rest of the frame. Symbolically, I would like to say, if I'm interpreting, interpreting this shot correctly, it was symbolically conveying the idea of isolation and also the isolation of one's beliefs, the questioning of ideology, uh, being alone with, with one's thoughts. It was straight out of a cinematography textbook. It was amazingly well shot. Amazingly well shot. Is that is that proper English? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I can break down cinematography, but I can't speak English correctly. <laughs> that makes two of us. Uh, now, Dave, 
You said there was a lot of shots, and this is something we talked about last week that we wanted to bring. We wanted to focus on the cinematography and the production design and yes. the art and the art direction every week because there's just so much, and we just didn't want it to fall to the wayside because we're constantly focusing on the actual story and the character development. And we promised ourselves that we would bring up at least one or two good items. Uh, you said there's a lot, yes, but if you had to choose one, what sticks out? in your head as something very well thought out from the from a technical side and 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 an artistic side as well artistic side see i was looking at more like an artistic side watching this and see, trying trying to ask myself what shots or what scene stuck to you more visually and i'm going to go really simplistic this this is this is a, this was a really simple scene that played out but i believe it was shot perfectly because it was so simplistic and which one was that it's the uh, stamet scene with uh his former ex-lover that whole scene why do you say when you say lover it sounds so like sexual well, his lover it was the it one was. that <laughs> the one that plows him <laughs> well we don't know that you make it sound he, we so don't know if he's a catcher or a gear or, oh, or, or the receiver oh, come on why do any of them have to be <laughs> you know, well, you, you, you know, know you, it's one or the other. You can't have two catches. Not That's all. impossible. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I, I like to line my men up like circus seals, <laughs> like circus seal. <laughs> <laughs> grab the ball, grab the ball. <laughs> all right, so tell me your shot. The 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 shot, the scene that I really dug was the fact Stamets with his uh, with the doctor and. It was done so simplistically, but for me, it stuck out because in today's in today's world, they always focus on uh, the uh, a romantic scene as basically it has to be guy girl or you know vice versa, and everyone kind of gets it wrong because they go over the top with it. Right. This one, it was done so simplistically that this is how you shoot a nice romantic scene between two characters, regardless of their gender. It, yeah, it doesn't even matter. It didn't even yeah, matter because even I matter. really did felt the way that it was shot. It was done so perfectly, I, executed I perfectly, not just with with the shots, but with how everything in the th- everything in the the scene was done in a dim light, which I thought was brilliant because it made it feel like a dreamy haze. Like we knew Stamets is in a coma, but to Stamets, this is real. Yeah. So you have to convey not just to us that he's not really awake, but you have to give that illusion that they want us to feel like Stamets. Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree. It was a great scene. And it was a great scene because like you, you you kind of look at it and say, yeah, I could see this scene being played out perfectly for any, any romantic scene. Yeah. And, you know, I really dug the fact that when Stamets um, says, I want everything to be the way it was. And all of a sudden we, we immediately boom, jump cut right to a scene of basically them at the bathroom <laughs> doing their usual thing about like waking up in the morning and telling yeah. each other their every day. Yeah. And I'm always like, that's brilliant. Yeah. The way it was jump cut right there. Yeah. It felt it, it was supposed to convey like a, a dream scenario for Stamets, but it felt real. It felt organic the way it was shot. Yeah. The way the light came on and all of a sudden, yeah, it, it brought light into the darkness, so yeah. to speak. 
I agree it was good. And we're going to talk more about the emotional side of that when we get into the Stamets situation in a moment here. Um, let's finalize our discussion on Lorca a bit. Okay. Okay. My only potential issue, as I was saying, with this whole Lorca situation is the character's complicated nature, as we alluded to a moment ago. Although we were led to believe he had some form of PTSD, it helped with his core development as a character. But the question is, what happens now? I don't want him to simply fall into the MU archetype of he's evil. Well, why is he evil? Just because that's been one of my biggest issues with the MU. They take away all the complicated nuances of what creates a morally and ethically bankrupt individual, and they dumb it down to a simple, that's just how they are here, and it's worked for the one-offs, but now that we're delving deeper into the MU, I feel like it would be a, a, a very big disservice. We have to understand the reasons why they act that way, and... Let's say Lorca is a bad. He ends up being the bad guy, no matter what. It is what it is. It needs to be something much more deeper than simply a grab for power. Yes. What got them here? When it comes to the the individuals of the MU, why is it not a, why is it not questioned more often? Yeah. Is his drive simply to conquer the emperor? If they go that route, there needs to be an emotional why. Yes. There needs to be something deeper than simply, oh, I need power. There needs to be something to identify that we as an audience can truly identify with, especially when you have an actor like Jason Isaacs. The dude's a talent. Don't, don't, please don't dumb down anything about him. He's He's a very complicated character and Some blogs were blasting the PTSD aspect, saying that was stupid and very easy. But PTSD isn't a a stupid, easy affliction. It's a very complicated psychological affliction. And to give your character something like that to wrestle with is a great way to help flesh out this person. So I'm hoping that whatever his real problem ends up being... It's just as complicated as PTSD. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I agree with you. The, that is by far the number one concern that every everybody who's been watching Discovery hopes and thinks about while they continue while they watch next episode is that Lorca Lorca has been such a great character to this point that you just hate to see him just be whittled down into the stereotypical parallel universe archetype yeah you know the thing i do like that gives me some hope is the fact that they are really showing more depth into the mirror universe than we've ever seen before yeah you know they they delved into the differences in culture like in this past episode uh the the scene between uh georgiou and burnham georgiou talks about how you know compassion uh, self, uh, selfishness, uh, selflessness, mm-hmm. and peace, negotiation; those are all foreign things to the Terran Empire. Things they got rid of what they got rid millions of, of years millions ago. Of she years said. ago, yeah. And I like the fact that they give those little tidbits to try to show that 
the Terran Empire is more than just evil versions of us. It's well, let's hope. It's basically the difference in in the Terran in the mirror universe and us is it's a different of ideology, right? And I think that basically the what after I watched that episode, the one question that I have that I was so giddy about is okay, if they go with the route that they're going to try to say that Lorca is evil, but is he evil? Because guess what? If you're evil in the Terran in the mirror universe, for us in the uh, in the parallel universe, you're actually a good guy, right? Because not everybody, and this is something Thomas and I always discuss on our Supernatural show. You're never the bad guy in your own story, exactly. So, what is Lorca's ideology? What you're is, you're, you're exactly ideology. right. Where is he coming from? And I'm hoping again that they do delve into that just a bit. I know the story's about Burnham, but in order to give Burnham her due, you have to support her with realistic, complicated characters like Lorca. So, you know, I'm 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 not saying they've done anything bad yet. I'm saying I'm hoping. Moving forward, that is a little more complicated. And the question that I have right now, because I just thought about it. Okay, we know everyone has their own parallel universe personality. Now, if Lorca is from this MU, what happened to the Lorca that was in Prime? Yes, that's a big question I have on the show notes in capital letters. What happened to Lorca Prime? Yeah. What happened to him? Did did he actually die on his ship? Did Lorca from the Tarrant from the MU actually blow up the ship like he said he did? And Lorca was actually aboard? Exactly. Yeah. I'm like going, and how was far he back, <laughs> Dave? But this if he did something like that, how far back is his manipulation? Did he have anything to do with the war with the Klingons? Did he have a hand in pushing that forward? There's a lot of questions now. Now that you find out who this grand the grand puppeteer is. A lot more questions begin to start falling, falling out as well. Yeah. But we shall see. We're gonna, I'm sure they're going to get into that. We still have three full episodes uh, before the end of the season. So we have plenty of time. Now, David, let's next get into and discuss Stamets. Not only did we get some much needed answers as to what is going on with him, but there was, just like you were saying, it's one of your, your artistic highlights for the week. It was. There was some heart-wrenching emotional resolve. Uh, a lot of folks on the interwebs were wondering if Dr. Hugh Colbert was alive within the mycelium network uh, somehow due to the mycelium spores and how it works. And that very well could be. But it was less about whether or not he's alive and more about Stamets' drive, his motivation. His motivation. His motivation. Yeah. The emotional kick that he needed to get him off his ass so that he can fight the corrupted network and get to work. It was literary tangibility. Yes. Used to give and propel a character who's lost within his own mind, both figuratively and metaphorically. And how is he going to find his way out? It was actually quite beautiful. And I do agree with you. I mean, that scene between Stamets and Colbert was great. And, and I'll be honest with you. And I, I got to tread very carefully here because I'm not going to, I don't want to say anything offensive. But I, just like with anything on TV, you have to relate to it. Yeah. Right. And it's always been hard for me, except for one other gay relationship. It's always been hard for me to connect emotionally. Yes. 
And it's because I'm maybe I'm not gay. I don't know what it is, but it's very hard for I, I don't like dislike it. I'm fine with it. In fact, the on, the only other gay relationship I actually ever really truly connected to and I could and I felt the emotions and I even got some tears was the one in you don't watch Shameless, but there's a show on Showtime called Shameless and they delve into a gay relationship yes. between the two. And it's a it's not a good relationship. It's a it's a passionate relationship. It's almost it's a, abusive. It's, yes. Okay. So you know what I'm talking yeah. about. And I I've said to my wife, I'm like, this is how you do a relationship because anybody can relate to this. Anyone can relate it's to it. So good. And that's how I felt about the Stamets and and Hugh Dr. moment Goldberg. in this in this in this episode. I related. I found myself getting emotional. I was invested. And I felt for the characters. It was just so well, so well executed. And that's what all shows should strive to do. And it shouldn't matter what the gender is, what the sexuality preference is. It, it just, it shouldn't matter. And that's how you do it. That's why I said it's like, it's one of those, for me, artistic wise, cinematography wise, just the whole package was actually probably one of the, one of the best moments for me, because just like you, I, I always see like movies and TV shows where they try to force a uh, gay relationship and, and it just flounders because you can't relate to it. And you know what, Dave, it could also be the fact that sometimes we have gay relationships being written by individuals who aren't gay, who aren't gay. Yeah. And, and we know firsthand that there are gay writers on the writing staff and they get it. Maybe they they understand the emotions behind it. And, and and maybe some people, writers out there, are saying, "Michael, sh- you don't know. Yeah, if you understand relationships, you should be able to write and that's a relationship." And and it, I don't know. It's it's definitely. I feel like to say to be absolute about it would be wrong on my part. But I think it's definitely. It's it's not a discussion for this show per yes. se, but. It is a question that other shows that delve into those types of things could definitely explore. Could could explore and actually get yeah. better right. if they did it right. Yeah. Now, I know it felt like a, an ending for Dr. Hugh Culber. I, I think that was the point. Otherwise, the emotional pull wouldn't have been as strong between, the, the, between Stamets and, and him. Let's look at the sources of inspiration for the Mycelium Network, the very idea that it was derived from, which was a book written by a gentleman named, believe it or not, Paul Stamets. It literally talks about saving the world. This is a real book. Yes. Okay. It literally talks about saving the world by way of fungus. And I'm dumbing this down. Okay. This is all layman's terms here. I'm not going to get into the science of it because it's rather boring. Uh, and how it connects to life and repairs it. Okay? So we can begin to see how possibly Culber could actually be be brought back, or even possibly aiding in the recuperation of Ash himself. Yes. Will the mycelium network be used to repair life as the source of inspiration says it could now dave is that going too far is that into darkness triples issues no no because this is what this is what uh star trek's all about is delving into fringe science and david 
for all the people out there complaining about the mycelium network and uh, saying it's not scientifically sound, it's stupid. There has been lots of blogs, you know, those people who like to claim, uh, I read Science Weekly and I subscribe to uh, Popular Science, so I know that the mycelium network is completely impossible. It can never work. It's just uh, they should all be embarrassed of themselves. Gene Roddenberry is rolling in his grave right now, based on your your terrible pseudoscience skills. <laughs> And then, and yet, the book is written by a gentleman who is a, who is a scientist, and he talks about my, mycelium repairing by way of fungus, yeah, and connecting with other living organism and organisms. Make, and it makes sense because you, you, uh, when you look at his book and you look at his theorem, and that's the thing that is the biggest thing about fringe science that a lot of like you know like the people you say the bloggers who think they're scientists don't understand. 50% of science is theory. Uh, I hate those Star Trek guys. I'm going to blog about them. Telling me I don't know about science. Set phasers to stun. No, set phasers to kill. Science is is partly theory. And the thing was about the mycelium network is like, it's a theory. It's a, it's a proven yeah. scientific theory. And like, all the, the, the basis, like you said, not to uh, sound bad and dumb it down, but it's about fungus healing life it's basically taking the simple blocks of life i have fungus between my toes <laughs> do you think i can uh i can repair culbert bring him back to life <laughs> you make your own culbert yeah here. <laughs> here take the fungus between my toes i got athlete's foot i'll bring him back to life for you but it's it's actually really cool and it brings it into question well what is stamets seeing yeah is it is it something that's in his brain because that could be uh, that could be like affecting what he's seeing i agree and w honestly i feel like it's just a a literary way to make a decision by way of a tangible element. I, I yes. just think it's a writing device, honestly. I, I don't think we're made to really ponder too much about Colbert being alive. I think it's just a way to get our our character to move along. However, that being said, is the, are they trying to lay the breadcrumbs? Are they trying to lay breadcrumbs that he is possibly alive somehow within the network? It's gonna we be, already know the spore drives are everywhere, right? Yeah. Everywhere. It's going to be difficult because you got to remember... And when when he's when he has that scene with uh, Colbert, Colbert turns to Stamets and says, "I'm dead." <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> he, simple. He's speaking at, as himself. As himself. So I'm wondering if there is a part of him part because of, of the spores and the fungus that connects life together. If he's partially alive in some way, yeah. I can see something like that. If if fans are thinking that he's going to miraculously turn up again and magically appear, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. But something like this where it's a, it's like pieces of him, a fragment of him. Right. Yeah, it's very possible that it could. Now, Dave, bringing this all back, okay, and what we've been discussing about the mycelium network and what it could mean for Colbert, but let's talk about what it could mean for Ash as well. Ash Tyler did in fact exist. Now we're going to, we're going to go back around. We're going to circle back to the mycelium network in a moment. Okay. We find out that Ash Tyler did in fact exist. Yes. For me, this is one of the most disturbing moments. I think uh, in Star Trek history, I think it's the most disturbing scene, the most disturbing idea 
they've ever executed on a Star Trek show. I'm absolutely terrified of body horror. And that particular genre of horror always works for me. It always works on me, I, I should say. It does, it does poke me in the aspect of fear. It gets the reaction that body horror enthusiasts, directors, writers want to get from their audience. No, I, I so, get you, definitely. I mean, when you find out that Ash is a full-on abomination... And let's just call him Ash Ash Volk, because that's pretty much what he is at this point. We find out that, for the most part, they are both alive. Yes. He's a full-on abomination. They have harvested DNA and grafted it together and reconstructed his consciousness. So it's him. It's not his body, as we learned from Colbert's medical report before uh, before he got his neck snapped. Yes. But, I mean, I don't think there's any room left for questions. It's both of them. It's both of them. And the thing that I found really cool about this, this was another one of those scenes that I thought was really awesome, was the scene with uh, Laurel and her working on um, Ash. When you say the, working on him, you mean when she was, like, writing him? Not that one. That oh, okay. was because she was working the dream. She was working it on him <laughs> but, as well. During the medical scene and everything else, it was very reminiscent of, as funny as it sounds to me, when I first saw this, I'm like, this is Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, it's disturbing, man. Laurel, Laurel is Frankenstein, and Ash, Ash Vok is basically the Frankenstein's monster. He's the abomination. Laurel's Frankenstein, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh. But, oh. But that's why, that's why I thought was interesting was the fact that Laurel actually takes responsibility for what she did. Ash is her responsibility. It really brings it forward. Kind of like I thought looking at it, I'm like going, Oh, it's a romantic thing. Yeah. You know, she's in love with Vok. It is a bit, it is a bit, but yeah. then there's that little element. Like what you said, those, all those stories of body horror yeah. where the doctor created the abomination, but feels responsible for the abomination. Dude, that's, I'm glad you're drawing those parallels. Cause that's exactly how I felt too. And it's like, Oh my God, this is, this is really scary stuff yeah. because like it's Gothic horror. It's, it's, it is Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how all of it, uh, you know, pans out. I I'm waiting to see what comes of this because this whole time we've been led to believe the Klingons would be the big bads, right? Yes. But we found out otherwise in this episode as well. So what does all of this mean ultimately? Exactly. What does like, all of this mean? Because David, we've been led by the nose purposely to believe that this is going to be about the Klingons and, and the Federation and the war and the uniting of the houses. But we find out that in a lot of ways, the story of the Klingons was just kind of a way, like a platform, a platform to be yeah. used as a, as a takeoff point or a launching point. You get this really deeper story that's kind of, that came out of left field. Right. And it's just served as kind of a launching point to get these players into position so they can move forward with, forward with the bigger, the bigger story. You know, outside of the body horror and the disturbing elements and this reveal that we got that Ash and Volk are pretty much still alive uh, and they're one in the same. What what is this ask, what does this mean for the story? Yeah, there's a great reveal. It, it did a great it had a great effect on the audience. But what is the point of all this? I, I couldn't it could be just a, just simply distraction. It could, it could. To throw us off the scent of the main plot. Uh, there has to be an ultimate point, though, for 
Volk. Oh yeah, especially bigger, since, bigger ramifications. Especially since like throughout this entire mid season with Ash and Laurel, they've really tried to push the fact that the story that is at first we thought, oh, Laurel wants to protect Ash, right? Mm-hmm. But in actuality, she doesn't want to protect Ash. She wants to protect what's inside of Ash, which is Voke. She yeah. wants to protect Voke. And that just brings up a whole different like element to the story because like you gotta remember when we first saw that the 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 scene with Ash and Vo- and Lorel, we were thinking, oh, they're lovers. We saw the scene of Lorel making love to Ash. What is it with you and the lovers and making love and and I, what you're, why you like all your words are like romantic now? Just say <laughs> they were sexing. They were sexing. I don't like they were having you. sex. I mean, I don't think the writers in the writing room when they wrote this scene, like, okay, so Lorel and Voke are making love. <laughs> Let's go ahead and write that scene. <laughs> that would be so funny. I, would, I believe they should be making love. I would love you I guys would, think? If, if the showrunner had said that, you know, if, if that's how Aaron Harberts had <laughs> sold it, I would have laughed myself right out of a job. I was like, ah! <laughs> Come on, dude. Come on, just say what they're doing. Yeah. They're fucking. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. But I do get what you're saying. But there does. Absolutely, there has to be, there has to be bigger ramifications. There has to be. Now, Dave, are these ramifications going to be just a way to fix some canon issues? Is this how they're going to help correct the Star Trek canon? For example, the Klingon appearance, which is not a discovery issue, and I, I, I still keep seeing that pop up. The Klingon appearance is a Star Trek issue. Yes, always has been. In 10 short years, Kirk starts his five-year mission where the Klingons look a lot like humans. Humans. Are we going to start seeing this? Are they going to explain away the issues? Are they going to finally fix the canon issues with how different Klingons look? Yes, they did it a bit in Enterprise with the flu and explained the differences in the ridges, I believe. But is this going to ultimately fix it all? That there's a, a person out there with Klingon DNA who's also a human, human. that ends up, is he going to start slowly regaining some of his ridges? Is he going to have offspring that becomes something totally different? That's what I think. What's going to happen? How is this going to affect the Klingon bloodline in the, in the grand scheme of Star Trek canon? Do you get where I'm going? Absolutely, because that that in the end, in the in the very beginning of this season, we all know that the Klingons have been forcing this issue of purity, purity, yep. purity. Yep. Well, Voke, Voke already number one when we first get introduced to Voke, he's the albino Klingon, and he's already a castaway because he's different. Yeah. Now Voke is even more so different to the point that he's half human. <laughs> but but is he though as well? Because that's the next question. Laurel seemed to have killed the part that was Voke due to a psychological breakdown that Voke and Ash was having. She started to gain a little bit of sympathy for the fact that he's in a permanent. He seemed to be in a permanent stasis of agonizing torture when it came to psychological torture. Psychological torture. Did she do the right thing and heal him? Obviously, that's what it looked like. But who does she get rid of? 
because she howled like Klingons do when they lose people that they love at the end when you saw the brain wave patterns change yes. on Ash on the computer readout. So did she do that? Did she actually kill the part that was Voke, his memory? Just because she, and if she did, that doesn't mean she could get rid of the DNA. It's still there. And we still have that issue or potential canon fix there as well. I mean, Dave, the Discovery writer said from day one, they're going to explain the difference in the Klingon, right? Yes, they did. It, it was in one and of the first And it had interviews. to do with what? Evolution? Evolution. So let's see what happens. So far, every time the writers have said something, they weren't just blowing smoke up our asses. They were not. They were no. trying. To, they were giving us, you know, little pats on the head. Calm, pats on the head. Calm down, calm Star down. Trek fans. <laughs> we will get there. Now, now. Now, now. Please don't blog about me, you asshole. And that's why I like the Star Trekers because they know how to deal with the trolls. Yeah. Just pat them on the head. Send them on their way. All right. So, Dave, we do need to go to a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the rest of the episode. There's a lot to get into. That's why we're taking a second break. Just going to... Oh, I'm going to die here. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh, wow, there. I'm, I'm alive now. I know. <laughs> 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 All right. We're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to break down the rest of the episode. Pray havoc! And let's slip the dogs of war. everything! wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it well that's exactly how we feel about you that's right adamandeve.com wants you so bad we're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order you heard me right that's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life first you'll get a sexy surprise for her second an adventurous toy for him and third a little something we know you'll both enjoy plus you'll get six full-length adult movies on dvd and number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. Energize. We're back. <laughs> All right, David. So apparently Kelpians are a delicacy in the MU. And boy, was that sickening. <laughs> yeah, that caught me off guard. I was like, oh, that's yeah. why she made her pick one. <laughs> I don't. The, the, the writer of this week's episode is a dark motherfucker. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I mean, the writer, uh, Dude, Jord- <laughs> Jordan Nordino, he he loves some sickening shit. I, I, Again, they, though, dude, they 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 hinted at the fact that remember, I mean, uh, Saru mentioned that his race started as a a prey species, a prey species. Yeah. So I mean, it makes sense, but I'm just saying, <laughs> like, come on, Jordan, simmer down there, <laughs> simmer down. No, I, I feel like it worked for this episode, <laughs> but this episode did did definitely have a horror vibe. Oh, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. 
So Burnham eating a Kelpian might be one of the most disgusting moments in Star Trek since McCoy making out with the salt monster in the original series. (laughs) I mean, my God, I think I would rather make out with the salt monster (laughs) than eat a Kelpian. Than eat a Kelpian. I don't know. I don't know. I'd eat a Kelpian. (laughs) I mean, please throw me in the agony booth at least. Agony booth. Yeah, I'll take the agony booth. (laughs) <laughs> with the salt monster if, 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 if I must but please do not feed me ganglii I mean even the very word ganglii just doesn't sound right to you does it no it's, it's, it sounds like penis to me for some reason it, <laughs> ganglii is synonymous with peen I want to know I want to know if this is going to play a play a role for when Burnham gets back to the ship <laughs> because you got to remember Saru was asking uh, w- was really curious what the Kelpians were like in the MU. Yeah. And if the first time Burnham lied to him. We eat you. <laughs> I know. I mean, like, what do you, I, I want to know if they're going to play with that the next couple episodes. You want them to play out. with the gangly eye, Dave, until it gets hard. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you got to play with that gangly eye. Yeah. I swear this doesn't happen to me all the time. <laughs> I'll be laughing though if they go with something like Saru constantly gets like his ganglia, his fear ganglia keeps going up around Burnham. Oh, come on, David. You She's are. She's going to eat me. Uh, they're going to make love next, right, Dave? <laughs> all right. So let's talk about the Imperial Palace or the ISS Sharon. Sharon? Sharon. Sharon. I absolutely loved the production Dude, design that yet again. ship was nice. It was cool. And it looks like they're deriving some of the inspirational cues from what would seem, correct me if I'm wrong, it would seem like it's from ancient Chinese culture. Yep. That's what it looks like, right? It looks like With it. the whole entire, the whole, the palace and the architecture. It was just absolutely gorgeous. You know what, what, what surprised me was the fact that when you, when they do the pan shot of the ship. Yeah. It reminded me of the ship from Enterprise because it looked very. The thing about the Enterprise, uh, in of course the show Enterprise, it looked, it didn't look sleek. It yeah. looked rough. I I get what you're saying. See, I felt, and I I got to look at some more. I'd like to see some more concepts as well as uh, some stills. But uh, I, I felt like uh, it changed a lot, even though I liked the way it looked. And I think it works for the Terran Empire being in the MU, but I felt like it it changed the architecture of of Star Trek a bit. I, am I wrong? No, no, because like uh, when I first saw it, I'm like going, that looks nothing like any Federation yeah, ship. It, it ever. looked a bit like a Battlestar Galactica ship. It, am, am I totally off basis here? Uh, I wouldn't say Battlestar Galacta. It uh, didn't Galactica? have the same architecture though of of a Star Trek show, did it? A little bit. Or maybe I just didn't see it correctly. I, I I don't know. A little bit because it looked like a ship we've never seen before. Like I'm okay with it because they're in they're in the the MU. But I definitely don't want to start seeing the architecture of Star Trek changing too much. Because even yeah. from, from Enterprise down to the next generation, uh yes, there's been changes in designs due to the obvious shift in time periods. But when it comes down to the architecture that Gene Roddenberry had laid out back in the 60s, for the most part, it's always been the same. I'm hoping they don't go down that. I mean, as a Star Trek fan, Dave, you got to be like against that as well, right? 
I am. Yeah. But here's the thing. But, but it does work for the. It for works this. for the MU. Yes. It works for the MU because we have not seen, uh, to my knowledge, any Terran ships fully yet. Yeah, we know that the Terran Empire is supposed to look similar to the Federation. Right. However, they've. It, it would make sense to me if they have a different ideology that their ships, there might be a few different ships that are different. Possibly. I mean, again, it's not a deal breaker. I was just bringing it up. I'm yeah. hoping they don't start going down that route because, and I don't think they are no. because they've always done since day one now, uh, starting back in the first episode and plus in interviews, they've always said that they're going to stay true to the design of Star Trek. Although when it still, comes to production design, wardrobe, and so on. I still wish that we would have seen the Defiant. Because Defiant plays in a major role in this story. I, I think it was smart we didn't, Dave. Honestly, because I at first as a, as a from a fan's perspective, from a fan's point of view, I wanted to see it. But as a writer and a TV enthusiast, I felt like it was a good decision that they redacted. They had redacted files, uh, and the Emperor George O was afraid of the idea of it getting out. She knew that it was dangerous. Therefore, the information would be hidden if not destroyed. I um the biggest fear to any dictator or tyrannical government is the idea that freedom is a possibility. So for them to redact and destroy any traces of another universe does make sense. Does make sense. But it brings up it brings up the question then then what about well, how does this uh, how is this supposed to connect to the end of Enterprise or of the MU? Does it need to? Do we really need that? Yes, I, I feel like as a Star Trek fan, yet again, Dave, I feel like yes. I would like to know how that ended with how Sato. The, with Sato, but is it necessary for the story of Burnham? That is true. It doesn't do anything and, for the story, of and Burnham. that's what this is about. This is about Burnham. And that's what we need to go back to. If it's not necessary for the current story, they've given us that little fan service by tying it in. I, I don't think we need a full blown. Yeah. I'm not saying they delve. shouldn't ever delve into it. Or, and, and I'm not saying they shouldn't give us a little bit more. I'm just saying that if they didn't, I, I feel like it works just fine as well. Yeah. So this brings us to the reckoning uh, as Burnham called it in the episode her having to confront her demons, which I thought was just a great moment in discovery. This scene was very important to Burnham's Burnham's development moving forward. As I had said before, we will see her placed in a similar position. I've been saying this. I don't think it's going to end good for either Lorca or Emperor George L. Also in these scenes, we begin to possibly see elements of the shared parallel fates as we discussed that it is much more than simply Lorca and Stamets manipulating things. The Burnham of the MU also betrayed Giorgio in a very personal way. Thereby signaling yet again to the audience that there is in fact a shared parallel fate yes will burnham's reckoning though because ultimately what does this mean will burnham's reckoning be the comeuppance she deserves while also doing the right thing these are all things they're setting in place they're getting us ready for her to face her demons and they are by the end of this season dave 
they will we will see Burnham in the exact same position that she was in the opening two episodes. We're going to see it. I'm not saying the exact situation verbatim, but there's going to be very similar scenarios and George Joe will be involved or Lorca. And she's going to be faced with that idea of, well, what do I do? Do I, do I betray them? Because I feel like this is the better way. Is she going to see the pain of betrayal in George Joe's face yet again? Yes. So you're on board that train. Yeah, I'm I'm aboard that train because everything has to lead up to something. And Burnham's story, that that has been the the core element of all the writers. And I think it's been beautiful how they've they've stuck to their guns. Yeah. Because they could they could have veered off and basically went on a tangent. Unfortunately, like Star Trek does, and all of a sudden we focus on different characters. Well, David, this isn't the old days though, too. Yeah. Like this isn't going to be a feel good story. This isn't the eighties. This isn't the nineties. I know star Trek is supposed to be about hope and you can have hope but at the same time. We need that Shakespearean tragedy, which is also inspirational cues taken from star Trek. Shakespearean ideas has always infiltrated the narratives of star Trek always. And Shakespearean by de- definition for the most part, is tragic it's tragedy so we're not this isn't going to end with a little bow on top and be happy and we're going to feel good it'll end with a sense of hope but the story itself and and the road getting there is going to be full of dread yeah it has to be complex imagine doing the right thing and this is what she's going to have to do imagine doing the right thing means that you must live through similar situations that you'd rather forget yes and i uh Sonequa Martin Green yet again shows that she belongs as the lead of this show. She Her does. acting abilities is just always on point, and you feel every moment of dread she feels, every moment of uncomfortableness, you feel it. I've noticed that too throughout the entire the entire season, honestly. Yeah. Burnham Burnham is kind of like a fish out of water. And Give give Sonequa Martin. What about a Kelpian out of water? But Sonequa Martin Green's done a fantastic job actually portraying that feeling. Yeah. But not going too overboard where it's like we we end up rolling our eyes and going, oh, here comes Burnham again. Okay, she's going to be worried about something. She's definitely a much more subtle approach to our leads than we've seen in years past. Yes. I mean, it goes without saying. William Shatner is a, is a good actor, <laughs> he's but he's, he's not subtle. Even the 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 great the great Patrick Stewart, a, a fantastic talent. Oh, but over the top. But he also wasn't subtle. You had um, let's look at Cisco. Was not subtle. Oh, Catherine Janeway wasn't necessarily subtle. She was in the way she spoke, but her actions weren't subtle. I feel like there's a subtlety to. Sonequa's performances that makes her stand out. Yeah, for me, uh, for for me, Burnham's a very relatable character. And Scott Bakula was Podunk. <laughs> definitely not. We dog it. We have a starship. <laughs> now every time I see Enterprise, it's so funny when he starts talking about going. Why? Why does he say Ooh, the lolly. <laughs> Ooh, the lolly. And then he closes his eyes. Goes, oh, look at the stars. I never get tired of making fun of him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
Let's see here. There's a lot to digest, I think, from this episode for sure. For sure, Dave. There was a lot. I found myself about three and a half hours deep on these show notes. Oh, yeah. Because there's just so much to consume, take in, analyze, and break down. And I hope, hopefully, we did a great job today. There's so, and there's some stuff that we haven't even covered. You know, like basically the implications of like, okay, what, what is, what is the mycelium? We barely scratched the surface on the mycelium DNA thing. Yeah. And we're, we're going to wait and hold off on that. Cause I, I want to wait till we have a little bit more, more. right yeah. now. Cause all we can really do is speculate, which we did quite a bit with uh, when it pertained to the mycelium network. All right, so there were some comments. So before we close out today's show, I want to get into this. Uh, There were some comments on the interwebs, uh, possibly more like complaints. Maybe that's a better way of of explaining that. Complaints on us? No, no, no. (laughs) Just about discovery. Listen, if if someone was complaining about me, you know what I would say? Fuck up. (laughs) I don't give a shit. But there were complaints about whether or not the science made sense the idea of humans being sensitive to light in the MU. And I actually want to say this. I feel Dave. And again, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be a scientist. I don't watch Bill Nye on Netflix. But the physics of another universe have already been proven. It's canon in Star Trek that the physics are slightly different. Yes. Look at the idea of the quantum variance. Yep. The very idea of, of being able to distinguish what belongs in the MU and what belongs in the prime universe, right? Yes. That alone signifies there's a, there's a change in physics. Physics isn't necessarily going to be the same in other universes. Yeah. And if it's something very slight, like what we saw, I think that would actually make sense. I mean, Burnham, even though I think it was meant to be poetic, she did state that the, even the light is different here. Yes. And that, that's the thing is kind of like the one thing I, uh, I'd like to point out to anyone who is worried about the sensitivity to light genetics can always be altered in any way. There's so many possibility of genetics that basically why can't this one point in evolution or whatever you want to call it, Humanity basically developed the genetics of light sensitivity. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Because genetics have so many possibilities and variables. It's just as bad as physics. What if in the MU, everyone had uh, the average penis length was only 4.5 opposed to 6.5? <laughs> or it could here. be reverse. Yeah. Ooh, 9.5 is 9.5 the average. 9.5 is the average. Maybe it's the Kelpian <laughs> delicacy. Maybe it helps. Oof, gives you more. <laughs> gives you more. Adds, adds a couple inches. I don't know. All right, so on Reddit, JB Baldwin 10 says, so humans in this universe have always been more ruthless than the normal ones, right? Maybe they polluted the earth even more than we have and not as much sunlight came through. That's a kind of a a basic way to explain it. But yeah, I mean, why not, right? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I read more about this this argument for discovery. Someone made a good point. What if it's part of them being more aggressive, more predatory? Because predator... uh, Predatory animals and predatory species have a sensitivity to light because they hunt in the dark. Yeah. So why can't, oh, if, if humans are more predatory in this, in this uh, universe, it would make sense that they would, they would have like features that are more 
more common with predatory animals than a prey animal. Yeah. Uh, BB Mint says the writers are just poetic with us. The MU people have to avert their eyes from the light. The light is representing good, whereby dark represents evil. I like that. I like that one too. That one's a pretty good one. Yeah. So I feel like sometimes because it's just the the day and age that we're in, we all like to overanalyze certain things. You know, is there a reason? Possibly. But if not, I'm okay. Are you okay with the light sensitivity? I am very okay with the light sensitivity, especially since it's been established since day one of the MU. Yeah. Has it? I don't remember. I I remember the very first episodes that basically one of the things that they found interesting about the parallel universe Kirk was the fact that he had sensitivity to light. Like he was always in a dark room. Huh. I don't, I got to go back. I don't remember that, but Hey, if you Star Trek fans out there are calling bullshit on David, please let us know. Cause we need to know but Definitely. after 40 some years of Star Trek, it's kind of hard. Everything years, blends together. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched Star Trek since I was, I think I was two or three years old. So everything starts to come together. And sometimes there's some confusion. I know we've rewatched, we've recently rewatched the mirror episodes. Yep. So possibly it should be more on my mind, but it's, it's there's just so much. It's getting lost. <laughs> so please correct us. Star Trek. You can find us on Twitter at from the holodeck, as well as Facebook, facebook.com slash from the holodeck. Leave comments, post, tell us how you feel. If you like the show, if there's other things you want us to cover and we'll get into it. I want to thank everybody for listening to our, bo- hello to our broadcast. <laughs> I want to thank you, David, as well. Thank you. And everybody have a great night. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.